The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had the good fortune to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's new documentaries, including Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, who talked to us about her beautifully layered and timely portrait of the descendants of the slave ship Clotilda. We also spoke with Tamana Ayazi and Marcel Metelzefen, directors of In Her Hands, which follows the courageous young mayor of an Afghan town who fights for women's rights against the backdrop of the country's takeover by the Taliban. We also spoke with Elvis Mitchell, director of Is That Black Enough for You? His celebration of black cinema in the late 1960s and the 70s. And upcoming, director Chris Smith will be joining us to discuss his new documentary, Senior, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in tribute to his late father, the pioneering filmmaker Robert Downey Sr. Be sure to look for these conversations in our feed and watch the films on Netflix. Descendant in Her Hands and Is That Black Enough for You are available now, and Senior debuts on Netflix on December 2nd. Mark your calendars. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson. And I'm Mike Merrill. Welcome to Top Docs. Today we're talking to Ryan White, the director of Goodnight Oppie. Goodnight Oppie is about a robot named Opportunity who was sent to Mars in 2003. And she was expected to live for 90 days, but she ended up surviving for 15 years. So the documentary is about her adventures on Mars and a lot about her humans back on Earth that created and steered her every day in the emotional bond that was created with this robot. Goodnight Oppie had its world premiere this fall at the Telluride Film Festival and also screened at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, as well as numerous other festivals throughout the world. The film has just received six Critics' Choice Documentary Awards nominations, including Best Documentary Feature, Best Director, Best Editing, Best Score, Best Narration, and Best Science Nature Documentary. Ryan White is a multiple Emmy-nominated director whose films include The Feature Docs, The Case Against Eight, directed with Ben Kottner, Assassins, and Good Old Frida, as well as the Netflix doc series The Keepers and numerous acclaimed shorts. You wouldn't necessarily think of Ryan White as making this kind of a film because he's done true crime, he's done character-driven documentary. He did a documentary about the Supreme Court decision that ultimately led to gay marriage, but not science or nature. But as he pointed out, the consistent thing that he's drawn to are character-based films. I do think it's interesting also that there is a way in which the film slowly builds up to another kind of thing, which is the big picture. Why do we want to do this? What is the purpose of these missions? Why are there so many scientists involved? Why do they care about the geology? Why do they care if there was water? It's partly about the origins of life, but also it's partly about the possible end of life on the Earth. And this is really crucial. Mars once had water. It no longer has water. What happened to Mars? Did it get too hot? Did the water boil off? These are kinds of questions you can't help but come away with after you've watched this film. It's amazing. I mean, you mentioned in our interview with Ryan, you know, how costly, for instance, the Apollo mission was. But NASA throughout its history has always, and I guess it always will, be forced to justify its work. And I think the film does provide that justification. 
which shows how important this work is, what's required to do it, the toll it takes on the people who do it, and the rewards. Goodnight Oppie will be in limited theatrical release starting on November 4th and will be available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video starting on November 23rd. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us at Top Docs Pod on Twitter. It's at Top Docs Pod. Now, our conversation with Ryan White about his new documentary, Good Night Oppie. Good afternoon, Ryan. Welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. Love the podcast. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ken. How are you? So, Ryan, I want to ask about the openings. We love to start with openings. How it opens is familiar to me. Maybe it is to others, which is a voice comes on, says, at the beginning, there's nothing. There's no life for concept of a robot explorer crawling across the surface of another world. And then you start to think, you start to act, and you start to build, and those machines come to life. This is a familiar story to me. It certainly sounds like Genesis. And the music enforces that, I think, the sense of beginnings. Can you explain why you wanted to start with this quotation? Yes, yeah, so much of my draw to this film was about the connection between human and non-human. When I first took this project, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, the first films I watched were E.T. and Her, the Spike Jones film. And both of those were real benchmarks for me while I was making this film. That opening quote, I think, really gets to that idea of something non-human being born, which is an analogy that's made a lot in this film as these robots come together. But also her life doesn't really begin until she sets foot on Mars and takes her first steps. I've heard the scientists and engineers Many times when I've talked to them in interviews and since, people often ask if these robots should be brought back to Earth. And almost all of them say they were built for Mars. They weren't built for Earth. They never operated well on Earth. Mars is their home. My story is about one that was supposed to operate there for 90 days and ended up doing it far past her expectations. And so that's why we opened that quote. I think it's a little vague. It's a little provocative. And then you meet her, Mars, so to speak, right thereafter. Yeah, you really do play this up, right? You talk about them as being twin rovers. You talk about keeping her safe as possible. She becomes a family member. She has a mind of her own. It's continued throughout. Towards the center, we see Colbert making a joke about it. And a woman even saying, it may sound crazy that I felt like I was losing someone, but that's the way it felt. You really dig into this throughout the whole film. Yeah, I think it's something that was probably one of the biggest surprises to me in making this film. I took the story on because I loved that logline of the little robot alone on a planet that was supposed to live for 90 days and survive for 15 years. But all of my films previously, and if you look at my filmography, the subject matters are completely all over the place, but the through line is that they are all character-based films. And I thought, what a unique opportunity, A, to make a character-based film that's not about a human, but B, might have an accessibility to audiences I don't normally get to reach in my film, mostly generationally, like the idea that kids might be able to watch this film with their parents. And so that was a unique opportunity for me as a documentary filmmaker. But the big surprise lied in the humans. I had not met the human beings who worked on this mission before I said yes to making this film. 
And the film began in March of 2020. So it was right as COVID was taking over. And so our first step, because we couldn't be meeting people in person, was doing these Zoom pre-interviews when Zoom was a brand new thing. And we did it with about four dozen people who worked on these missions and spanned the entire lifetime of these rovers. And time after time in these three-hour phone calls, the scientists, engineers who I think we often assume are probably some of the most detached, unemotional people in their work were wearing their hearts on their sleeves in talking about these robots. And the sort of edict throughout the filmmaking, especially in the edit room, was often like, we can't anthropomorphize, which is the verb that is very hard to say, but we learned to pronounce at some point. We can't anthropomorphize these robots any more than the humans who created them and guided them are willing to. So, you know, all of those things you just said are quotes from the film from scientists and engineers and the way they speak about their rovers. And I think these were rovers that were only supposed to last for 90 days. That emotional bond as they lived on years and years and years only grew, therefore making their ending, their death, so to speak, ultimately even more painful for these people who had become so attached. So you did mention that this project seems like a departure for you, I would say, at least on the surface. You have not, as far as I know, you've not made a, quote, science slash nature, unquote, film before. Did the project come to you or did you come to it? How did that marriage take place? The project came to me. It's a very easy date to remember. It was March 12th, 2020. I had dinner in Los Angeles with Film 45, which is Pete Berg's company, and Amblin Entertainment, which is Spielberg's company. And they pitched the idea to me. And I have always wanted to make a space film. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. My Cabbage Patch doll was the astronaut version. I did my fifth grade science project. There's pictures of it on Alan Shepard because my dad had met him at a golf tournament and had a photo of him. So I created a whole backboard around that and a research project on him. And so space was like my first true love, even before filmmaking. And E.T. was my favorite film growing up. Fast forward 30, 35 years to when this was pitched to me. I'm in my 40s now. And I had never been pitched something that was the marriage of all the things I loved as a kid. I mean, it was coming from Amblin, makers of my favorite film ever. And it was a story that had that tone. I think Amblin is the perfect producer of this film when you look at Spielberg's filmography when it comes to tone and subject matter. And so this was an opportunity for me to kind of revisit that childhood passion. I hope a lot of what our film does, and I've seen this as people are coming out of theaters and talking to me about it, is for whatever reason, as we age into adulthood, I think we lose a lot of that childhood passion and that sense of imagination and discovery and that idea of I can do whatever I want to do and the sensibilities of wonder and awe as you <laughs> enter like the big bad wolf of adulthood, those start to escape us. and. Although I love my job probably to a fault. I love all of the stories. Every single one that I've ever made are like children to me. But this one was going to give me an opportunity to restore that inner child in a way that most of my heavy subject matters are far from that. 
I said yes right away to making the film. And of course, that was just based on a conversation, having no idea where it would all go. But I not only got to return to my childhood in making it, but I also got to make this during some of the darkest years, at least of my lifetime, during the height of COVID. You know, we were taking this film out to distributors in November 2020. So the height of the American election, when the political climate was very ugly. And I felt very lucky that I was getting to work on this story that was so incredibly heartwarming and apolitical and about some of the best parts of humanity and non-humanity coming together that really it was like a lifesaver in a lot of ways getting to work on this. And I think I can speak not only for myself, but my whole team when we were all holed up in our apartments, often 20-somethings that are living alone and can't come into the office anymore, getting to work on something so hopeful was really lucky for us during such hard times. So you're making the film during COVID. How did you work around and with those constraints to make the film in terms of assembling the materials you had to work with, the archival footage, gathering the interviews? Did you shoot at JPL? What can you tell us about the raw materials you began to pull together to make the film? As far as documentaries go, this was quite a COVID-friendly documentary. You know, typically my films are verite films and I'm out in the field shooting something. And I was doing multiple verite films when COVID hit and those all shut down. I couldn't be on planes at the time. I couldn't be flying to foreign countries. And this one was just an idea in our heads on March 12th. But once we pressed go on it, we were able to make it for three reasons. So we began with those pre-interviews, which allowed me to script this story. So I've never written a screenplay for my docs. I've done writing for my docs, but I've never written a full screenplay. But for this one, my vision from the beginning was to take the audience to Mars, to make the audience feel like they are on Mars in a photo real authentic way that's based on the real photography that these robots took and the telemetry that NASA has. But to do that, you have to create these huge visual effects. And we knew that was going to take years. And so we needed to put a screenplay into effect. And so that began March of 2020, when we began collecting these pre-interviews, we heard the stories that these four dozen people were telling over and over again, whether it's opportunity getting stuck in quicksand or whether it's spirit going missing on Soul 18 or a certain dust devil or a certain global dust storm. We were able to cluster together these main stories that people were telling over and over. And myself and my editor, Helen Kearns, wrote the film. She was actually pregnant. We wrote the film when she was like eight months pregnant. And then she went on maternity leave and she came back and edited the film after we had shot some stuff. So it was that visual effects world that I was writing. And then it was also an archival film in a lot of ways. About a third of the film is probably NASA's archive. It's almost a thousand hours of footage that we used to put this film together. So we had all of these tapes without labels dumped on us, just like in the documentary folklore of we have this awesome archive, we don't know what's on what, we don't know what's not there, but you're welcome to take a look at it. It was dumped into our office and we were able to hand out these tapes to all of these loggers that we had and they were able to watch it down in the confines of their own apartments during the height of COVID and write reports back whenever they found a needle in a haystack. And the third realm, so to speak, was JPL. And I'm very lucky that I live in Los Angeles. I live in Atwater Village, so I live in East Los Angeles. And JPL is probably a 15-minute drive from my house. And so 
most of my main characters live around Pasadena and East Los Angeles. When the time was ready, which it took a long time because NASA had extremely strict protocols around meeting in person with COVID because they're a government agency. But when we finally could do that safely late in 2020, we were able to start doing those interviews or those shoots within a 15 minute radius of my home. And so it allowed us to not be on planes. That way it was a very convenient film. It wasn't an easy film, but it was a convenient film to make during COVID. You've talked a bit about the visuals here, which are very compelling, but also the voices are very compelling. And I want to ask about one, which is this diary voice. They start with like Soul 1226 and it's read by Angela Bassett. What are these? Where did these come from? Whose voice is this? Yeah, so like I mentioned, writing a screenplay for this film, that was a huge part of it. We had these pre-interviews, which we use as the building box of the screenplay, but then NASA also told us about what's called the Analyst Notebook. It's available online, but essentially what it is, we call them the Rover Diaries. It's a day-by-day -day account of which each robot is going to. And so I've made a lot of films at this point. I know what it's like when you're interviewing someone after something has happened, because I began this film a year after opportunity had died. So inevitably, I was going to be interviewing these people about something retrospective. And in a lot of ways, it was going to be cathartic for them because it was going to be revisiting the story. But no matter how hard you tried and try, and trust me, I have tried throughout my career to guide an interviewee down a path where they are speaking in present tense. You know, you try to word your question in a way that says, okay, you're in mission control. Give me the play-by-play. -play. They inevitably slip into past tense and you're looking back on a story. I've made enough films to know that was going to be a challenge in this film if I was going to take the audience to Mars. And I want the audience to feel in the middle of these adventures or in the middle of these crises as they're happening. So NASA showed us this analyst notebook and I started reading them and they're all written in first person present tense. And so they are an outline every day that are infused with drama, infused with suspense because the person writing it doesn't know what's going to happen the next day. And I'm reading them and it's like a page turner. And so I knew from the beginning I wanted to make these Rover Diaries a narrative device because I thought they would root the audience in present tense. And the question then is, how do you do that? I've seen descriptions of our film that call Angela Bassett a narrator, which I find is really interesting because I was always say, we don't need a narrator for this film. We're not going to have a narrator for this film. It's going to be through the voices of NASA. And it's those interviewees from NASA. And what I call Angela is I call her performance the voice of NASA because she is reading literally what they wrote at the end of every day. And so we use those to script out the film as well. We could do play-by-plays of what it's like when opportunity's stuck in quicksand or when she's going steep downhill into a crater for the first time. And not only do those Rover Diaries have these firsthand accounts, they also come with all of the data that NASA's collecting on Mars. So that is the measurements from her instruments. That is her photography from that day. That is the level of tau in the air, which is dust, which really helped us light these visual scenes because we always knew how much dust was in the air weather, all of these things that help dictate the visuals that then we could create in our authentic way. So really, I think without the analyst notebook, we would have had a much harder time creating a totally real Mars and keeping the audience, hopefully, feeling like they're there as it's all happening. One of the things that I learned from the film that I found fascinating was just about the dynamic between the scientists and the engineers. 
And while they're all on the same team working toward the same goal, there are differences. And I'm sure there are occasionally some tensions between these two groups. It does seem like the scientists, if you were to create a hierarchy, are the, the bosses, quote unquote, and the engineers are maybe below them on the org chart. I don't know. But can you talk about what you learned as you went through these interviews with both groups about how they work together and how their jobs as scientists and engineers sometimes maybe don't quite jive? Yeah, well, I don't know if any of the engineers that listen to this podcast will be thrilled with the hierarchy you just established, but I think you're right because the principal investigator, his job is called principal investigator. It's also often used interchangeably with principal scientists was Steve Squires, who, you know, besides opportunity is arguably the main character in my film. I call him our Geppetto character. He was the one with this crazy idea to create this roving geologist and was seen as sort of the mad scientist who had this idea that was totally unreachable. And he eventually pulls off the impossible and his creation comes to life. And to your question earlier, he's the one reading that opening sentence. We don't show him while he's reading it. But I didn't know a lot about this either. And I think even now I see people 100% lump them together. Like they're just like NASA to people. And scientists and engineers are completely different jobs. There was a lot of tension between the two. The way I see it, it's like the engineer's job is to make sure that this robot dances, right? It's to make sure that this robot operates perfectly so that when it lands on Mars, there are no technical issues. But once they get it on Mars, they want that rover to be able to exceed its mission expectations. In this case, that was 90 days. And as we know, after they reached Sol 90, Sol is a Martian day, they were willing to take more risk with the robot. But engineers tend to be much more conservative because they don't want the robot to get hurt. They understand the mechanics of the robot and that if they overexert the robot in any way for a scientific experiment, that it could break the robot. The robot could tumble over going down into a crater. It could get stuck in sand. Its battery could run out. On the other hand, these robots for these scientists, for someone like Steve Squires, are doing what they would dream of doing in their lifetimes. These people would die, literally, to go to Mars, to set foot on Mars. But it is not possible right now. It is technologically impossible. It would not be safe for human beings to go there. And these geniuses have created a way to send this avatar out there for us. And we go through it all in the film. The odds that these Mars ever even set foot down on Mars are nearly impossible. Like the things that they have to go through to land these rovers on Mars are terrifying. But once they're on Mars, the scientists then are like kids in a candy store. It's like they are getting to go to this other planet. So they want to explore as much in the limited amount of life that these robots have. So the tension lies in that the engineers are always trying to keep them safe. And the scientists always want to risk things to drill into a rock that's down a hill or something. And I've heard this many times when people talk about this mission that they felt like it was the first time at NASA that those teams really gelled together fluidly. And that's not to say there weren't fights. And there are some in my film disagreements about whether they should be taking a risk, but that they were they were able to fuse those teams together in a way, especially as the robots passed Sol 90 and everything was the extra warranty. 
where they were willing to find that balance, that reconciliation between risk and reward. Risk meaning putting the robot through challenges and reward meaning having amazing scientific discoveries because you took her to a place that you never thought you could go. Later in the film, it's been about, I think, 14 years, these engineers would like to do something that the scientists are first skeptical about, which is to have Oppie take a picture of herself. Take a selfie is how it's described. And to me, this is an interesting, it becomes an engineer scientist thing. So of course, the engineers want to take a picture of the tool. And of course, the scientists are like, no, no, we got to save our time, energy, and so forth for scientific exploration. But the scientists do agree to it. But the other thing that certainly seems to me to be at work here is the change in the age. It's the Gen Z, it's the millennials. It's these folks for whom, how could you have something and not take a selfie? <laughs> you don't exist until it's on you know, social media. Could talk about that sort of change of the guard that happens. Yeah, you know, that's actually my favorite scene in the film, what we call the selfie scene, because if we did our job right, and I got to work with Industrial Light Magic, the best in the business at doing visual effects, and I hope the audience will feel like they are on Mars, they are on this journey with these robots, and the robots are the avatar for these human beings, you know, they have eyes that are cameras, and the human beings every day are getting to see Mars through the eyes of the robots. But the scientists and engineers never actually get to see the robot itself. They're seeing through her eyes. And so you'll watch my film and the first 90 minutes are this amazing photo real Mars where you're on this adventure, this journey with the robots. And that scene to me is such a pumping of the brakes in the sense that it's a reminder that these incredible geniuses who had fallen in love with these robots as they outlasted the odds, they never got to see their daughter, so to speak, as many of them describe it. And so the best they ever got is this, you know, and Oppie was arthritic by this point. She could barely move her arm that had the microscope on it that was taking the pictures and they had never done this before and pointed the microscope back at the robot. And so this grainy black and white pixelated, but dozens of photos stitched together. It's not even one photo because it's a microscope. <laughs> so it's capturing very close parts of the rover. This grainy mosaic that they were able to create was what many, it's not just Doug, the British guy in my film, many of them say was the most special moment for them of the entire mission was getting to finally see her. And there is a generational difference. Doug Ellison, he's the British guy who had this idea to take the selfie. We don't include his backstory in the film just because we couldn't have a three hour film at some point. We had to trim out some stuff. But he didn't work on the mission at the beginning. He was this guy in small town England who would just love space missions. And because this mission was revolutionary in the sense that they were immediately publishing the photography of these robots to the internet, Doug was this nerd. He was a medical device salesman. He was the space nerd who would wake up in the morning, look at all the photos that Opportunity or Spirit took. He would stitch them together in what's called a panorama or a mosaic where you could see the whole world of Mars in front of her. And he would publish that. And Steve Squires, the principal investigator, said that he would then wake up either at Cornell where he was teaching or California when he was at JPL. And he would look at what this British guy had created and he'd be like, oh my God, we should go up to the left because look at what he has found up there. And they were so impressed with this man in small town England, they ended up hiring him. And now he's one of the chief engineers on 
the cameras of the current rovers on Mars. And he'll often tell me like he has a young daughter and he'll say she wouldn't exist without these robots. I was moved halfway across the world because I love this mission so much. I met my wife at JPL. I have a family now because I love these rovers so much. And so you do see a generational difference in how people got attached to these robots, especially the people, the young engineers and scientists. They have a couple of them in our film. They became scientists and engineers because of this mission. One of them saw when she was in seventh grade, the rovers launched to space. One of them took part in a naming contest for these rovers. But the rovers were supposed to live for 90 days. These young women were 12 or 13 at the time. They never expected that they would get to work on the reason that they went into the space industry. And so by the time they're 25, 26, the idea that they get to work on opportunity, the rover that inspired them for their entire careers, they were incredibly attached and they were incredibly devoted to trying to prolong her life. And so I've heard Steve Squire say it many times, by year 15, the older people, many of them had passed away, but the older people who were still alive, funerals for opportunity at the end, it is mostly the younger people that are shedding most tears. It's a, also, I think this scene calls for obliquely really highlights something which I find most moving, which is the passage of time that we see here. And we're told that it takes, I think, Oppie, about an hour to take one of these granny pictures. It just reminds you of hour I, on my phone. I can, oh, things have changed so much in the past 15 years. They were ready to say goodbye to these rovers. They had long outlasted what they had ever expected for them. But the young people who were only in their first year, second year on them, just wanted more and more. And therefore, it was more emotionally devastating for them to see them die. Everyone was emotional for sure. But if you look in that footage that I have of the so-called funerals for opportunity at the end, it is mostly the younger people that are shedding most tears. Also, I think things have changed so much in the past 15 years. This scene sort of obliquely really highlights something which I find most moving, which is the passage of time that we see here. We're told that it takes, I think, Oppie, about an hour to take one of these granny pictures. It just reminds you of hour. I, on my phone, I can, oh, things have changed so much in the past 15 years in, sort of, in terms of technology. And we see they're all boxy PCs with the monochromatic spreadsheets. And towards the end, they have the nice Mac Airs with their full graphic interfaces. And the people change. They get older. We see Steve Squires dramatically change. We see people have children. The passage of time, there's the Martian landscape, which seems timeless, but mm -hmm. Oppie's growing old and we're growing older and our world's moving forward. Yeah. You know what? One of the most interesting reactions to the film that I have seen, which I've had a lot of different reactions. I've had a lot of older men <laughs> coming up to me like kind of with their hand over their mouth and saying like, you made me cry over a robot, like hiding it from their wives. But I've also had a lot of older people come up to me and talk about aging. A lot of what the engineers and scientists do in personifying these robots is make what their bodies are going through analogous to what a human would go through. So you hear about dementia, you hear about amnesia, you hear about arthritis. But what I wasn't expecting was for older people to relate to that in the sense of like, like I've had a lot of people come up and tell me personal stories. I had a great career. I'm at the end of it now. My body's giving out. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. And they're in tears telling me this and that they related to the robot. They didn't relate to the robot as an older person who had kids. And like, I know what it's like to love something and nurture something. They related to the robot in the sense of 
the robot age and the robot's body and mind are starting to give out. And those types of reactions are very personal. Sometimes they're very sad, but they're very heartfelt. And like I said, my most interesting entry point to this film was how do humans connect with non-humans? And to hear audiences have that range of reactions as they come out of theaters has been really revealing and really special as well. You mentioned that as a boy, you wanted to be an astronaut. I think I could probably include myself in that camp as well. You also mentioned that a mission to Mars can't have a human being on it because a human being cannot survive on Mars. So it occurred to me when you were saying that, that there is a real function in having people anthropomorphize the rovers, which is to be a substitute for the astronauts. Because yeah. what we connect with typically with an you know Apollo mission, for instance, are the astronauts and this idea of having them go to the moon and return safely. Well, it's a different ball game with Mars because the rovers, as you said, aren't going to be returning to mm -hmm. Earth. So we kind of need to anthropomorphize them so that we have something to identify with, I think. Exactly. We tried to play with that in the film. We actually called it our astronaut shot. Whenever you see that sort of side-by-side -side of Oppian Spirit in their spacecrafts kind of cocooned, but we shot it in a way that is like your typical astronaut shot in a film where you're seeing the face and the rumbling. And it's very violent, it's even more violent for Opportunity and Spirit, what they can survive, which we go through in our film. But I think what you're getting at is the real magic of what this mission was. You know, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't a mistake that they designed these rovers in a way that were adorable and that were lovable and that were somewhat, I don't know if they're human-like, but they're definitely creature-like in a way. You know, and my film often gets compared, or I see in a lot of headlines, like the documentary version of Wally. -E, and everyone at NASA is very careful to remind me, to remind people that these robots were built well before Wally -E ever came out, that they were launched and landed on Mars, and Wally -E was years later. And so if anybody looks like anybody, it's Wally -E looks like opportunity and spirit and not vice versa. But I think the idea that you have these stand-ins for us on Mars. And especially, like, I love films from my childhood about the connection between, like, dog films, like Turner and Cooch and Old Yeller. The emotion of those films comes from when that animal is in danger. And often those films end very sadly. So the idea that we're sending this box of wires, but it, it can be conceived of as so incredibly brave, like doing the things that we can't physically achieve, that it's out there, but it's alone. There's two of them, but they're on opposite sides of the planet. The sisters are never going to see one another. And that they're constantly going through these perilous adventures that put their life in danger. That does something to people's hearts for whatever reason. And I saw that happen time and time again in this film. Another great example of that is the wake-up songs, you know? That is a tradition from human space flight, which I didn't really know about, but that a song was played from Earth to wake up the astronauts on their day of whatever mission they're starting on. And these engineers and scientists did that for the robots as well. They played this song as a way to start their Martian days. And even when we were 
licensing music for the film. I've made a Beatles film before. I know how hard it is to license Beatles music. I've done it. And it took years. And when we were doing this film, our music supervisor, who was amazing, said the second hardest band to license is ABBA. We have SOS from ABBA in a scene that was critical to our film. It was too good to give up on that scene. We have Here Comes the Sun from the Beatles as well. And it's a great example of, I think, the magic of this logline, getting to go to these record labels who then talk to these bands. We get to decide whether their songs are used and saying like, we don't want to use your song as soundtrack. We want to use your song because we have a scene of it being played in a room to wake up a robot that's alone on Mars. That just does something to people's hearts. And time after time, we would get these yeses. But it's not just bands. It's a lot of amazing people that we got to work with on this film because I think for whatever reason, that log line does something to people's hearts. I knew I couldn't be an astronaut. I was afraid of heights. So my fantasy was to be a NASA engineer. And my first semester of college physics cured me of that fantasy. You guys are amazing. I was too chicken to be an astronaut. <laughs> but what you're saying is interesting because there's 11 human characters in my film. Almost all of them are outsiders in a lot of ways. Like even the old white straight American men were from like small towns. And then you have an incredibly diverse crew after them that include people from all over the world and races and generations and backgrounds. But I was always surprised that even the biggest geniuses on the missions now would often tell me like, I wasn't good at math and science, but I saw the first mission to the moon and I wanted to do that myself. And I made myself good at these subject matters. Mujige Cooper, she's the young black woman who was part of the naming contest for Spirit and Opportunity. She's very honest and says, I was not good at math and science as a kid, but I loved it so much. And I was not willing to give up on it. I would do it for camps during the summer. I got really good at it. We chose the people for our film. We chose 11. It could have been thousands of people that I included in my film. And it would have been probably just as powerful of a story. But we wanted young people who watch our film to see themselves represented on screen, to be able to say, even though I'm bad at math and science, even though I'm from this small town or I'm from this country, one of our guys is from Ghana, another woman's from rural India, I can climb that ladder and I can eventually achieve these goals. Because I think we assume that science and math and especially aerospace engineering is impossible to do. And I think these people would tell you otherwise with hard work and ethic. You know, what's interesting is this passing of the torch that's such an important part of the film is something that's critical to the survival and the success of agencies like NASA. We tend to think of technology as just this sort of self-perpetuating thing, but it's people that are behind the technology. And if NASA doesn't capture the imagination of the next generation of possible scientists and engineers, that's the end of NASA. It's the people that are just as important as the machine. So for me, that was a clear lesson from the film. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of the people say, we are the robots. The robots don't exist without us. There is no robot without the thousands of people that worked on them. So they are the people. The film is really about people. And I absolutely want audiences to take away that idea of doing something for the better of mankind, right? Like a lot of these people who worked on this mission aren't alive anymore. They're not even getting to see 
what Perseverance is achieving on Mars, the current rover, that's her name, what she's achieving on Mars, which is exponentially more than Opportunity and Spirit were able to achieve. This is a passing of the baton. It is like a relay race where in our lifetimes, we will never see what future lifetimes will be able to achieve in planetary science. But none of that will happen without taking these incredibly long parts of the relay race. You know, Opportunity and Spirit are like probably 25 years long if you look at their entire mission from when they were an idea till that. But their lives never end in the sense that the technological legacies, you know, they don't even land rovers on Mars now the way they do Spirit and Opportunity in my film, which is incredibly violent, incredibly dangerous through these airbags and retro rockets. It makes for an incredibly exciting scene in my film because the stakes are very high. I was there when Perseverance landed. I was at JPL in 2021. People were not that nervous. They were saying they were, but I could tell there wasn't the tension in mission control that there was during Opportunity Spirit because they are that confident in their landing mechanisms now that the robots should be able to land relatively safe on Mars. Whether I in my lifetime will ever see manned mission to Mars, I think it's possible based on what Perseverance is achieving right now. She's going to be the first mission that theoretically can send something back to Earth. She's going to be the first mission that launches something off of the land on Mars up into orbit. And she's testing all these things. She has a helicopter with her testing flights on Mars for the first time. They are testing all of these things in hope that it's part of the relay race to eventually landing humans on Mars. And every time they have one of these achievements, even if it takes 20, 30, 40 years, it is a part of that sort of relay race for humankind. And I hope that's a big takeaway of the film is that sort of benevolence that, you know, even if you spend half of your life working on something and half of those things that you do are failures, they are for the future legacy of humankind and non-humankind and technology. Let's talk about that because I think that's very important. You hint at the importance of finding if there's water on Mars throughout, but it's only, it isn't until minute 90 or so that we hear people ask, why should we go to Mars? And there's different answers that are given. And I just heard an analysis that the amount of money that Meta intends to spend on the metaverse over the next 10 years or so is, is about a quarter of a trillion dollars. And the only initiative that people could find that was of the same size was landing on the moon, was the Apollo missions, basically. We're about a quarter of a trillion dollars. So this question of where are we going to spend our vast resources that we have, it really seems to be turning inward towards the metaverse, towards consumer items. How does your film address that? Why should we spend money and time and effort to go to Mars? First and foremost, I always saw this as a character-based film and it was going to be an adventure, but there is a real scientific legacy to opportunity and spirit. And it's throughout my film, the building blocks that they discovered while they were there, which is the existence of water had once happened on Mars. But future missions are looking on whether life had once existed on Mars. And so you can't skirt that. And I think part of the magic of these robots is it's really hard to politicize a robot, right? It's like a box of wires with a few, as they try to pack as many tools as they can on these rovers, but that's not that many tools because the heavier a rover weighs, the harder it is to land on Mars. So they only get a few choices. So it's this box of wires with a couple tools who's taking measurements. And these two rovers with those tools discovered that water had unequivocally once existed on Mars. Huge revelation. But then the question is, what happened to that planet? And I think it's a totally valid conversation on 
where do we spend our money, our taxpayers' money? But I think the idea of our planet is in trouble. Our planet here is in trouble. That looking outwards at discovering what happened on other planets can be hugely informative to making our lives better on Earth. And I think that's what these rovers are doing through each discovery. It's almost a cautionary tale. They haven't discovered what ruined Mars at some point, but at some point, Mars probably moved from hospitable to a very unhospitable place now. Could we make it hospitable? Maybe. Could humans learn how to live there at some point? Maybe. But something led to the downfall of that planet. And so the legacy of science that Curiosity and Perseverance, who are the, the current rovers on Mars, are discovering, it will all be a part of telling us that story. It's, again, part of the magic of this mission. A lovable, adorable robot, it's hard to disagree with her scientific findings. It's much easier when you have a climate scientist on Earth being able to say, oh, that person's just being political. It's really hard to disagree with, with the discoveries of a robot, which are just simple measurements. I think, you know, one of the things that makes us identify with opportunity and spirit and the mission as a whole is your soundtrack, is your musical score. Your composer, Blake Neely, I think does an amazing job. And what he does and what you do as the director is you find the right cues to go with the different phases of the life cycle of the rovers. The rover goes through birth, death, life, rebirth, and ultimately death. How did you work with Blake to give the right tone to each of those moments in the life cycle? I've worked with Blake on almost all of my films, at least for the last 10 years, since my first two films. And then Blake began working on my third and everything I've done since I've worked with Blake. So we're very in tune with one another and he understands my storytelling. So we always begin very early. Oftentimes, Blake is writing something before I've even shot a frame of film and we start workshopping that stuff. And it's often music that I will listen to while I'm traveling to my first shoots or even while I'm shooting. And we came up with something that's quite similar to what the main theme in Goodnight Oppie ended up being. But yeah, it was the most unconventional doc that we had ever made. And so it needed the most unconventional score. And Blake has done a lot of scripted projects too. That's what he mostly does is he does scripted films and television. And my documentaries are kind of like his little pet projects on the side that he fits in, thankfully for me. But this one was huge for both of us in the sense that the soundscape was epic. It was otherworldly. And Blake and my sound designer, Mark Mangini, and Mark Mangini is a legend in sound design. He won the Oscar for Dune while we were making this film. He did Mad Max Fury Road, which probably has some of the best sound in any film ever. Also won an Oscar for that. He did the Star Trek films. He did the Blade Runner film recently. And so it really was a conversation, a constant conversation between Blake and Mark and myself on what that marriage of sound design was going to be. And we actually leaned in more in the original writing of the score, more into a mechanical sound. But then as Mark started to bring his authentic sounds, because Mark was like at JPL with microphones all over what are called the test beds, which are essentially the replicas of spirit and opportunity, the ones that they use to test out situations on earth. JPL allowed Mark Mangini to come there and mic up the robots and get all 
the real sounds of what the robot would be going through, or what her computer sounds like, or what her wheels or neck sounds like. And then we were also, because Perseverance had landed on Mars while we were making this film, she was the first robot with microphones on her. So she was recording what Mars sounds like. So as all that was coming in and Mark was building the soundscape of what Mars would authentically sound like, but also what the robot's movement sounds like, it was actually really freeing for Blake and I because it allowed us to lean much more cinematic and less mechanical, which was the original vision for the film. And so that was really fun. We directors get so much credit for the authorship of our film. And I wish we could be on this podcast with 10 or more of us, of my creative collaborators, because it is like nonstop creative conversations around these things. And then you fraction off. And like, that was maybe my DP doesn't need to be on the call about soundscape, but that was Blake and Mark and me on calls and in rooms together a lot to figure out what we felt was the final perfect marriage of sound design and music. And that's the type of stuff that I really love about our job. I have to ask about the final wake up song. Basically, Oppie is no longer responding and they have to give up. It's been, I think, several months now that they have not heard from Oppie. So they, and it's hard. Obviously, it's both technically hard, it's emotionally hard. They're actually giving up on a person. And what's amazing about this, and I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but the song of Billie Holiday's I'll Be Seeing You plays a very, very similar role in another current highly regarded documentary, Last Flight Home. Check our feed for Ken's recent interview with the director. And I think you do an amazing job here. It really brings home everything. It is way Steve Squire's way of saying goodbye to Oppie, but it's also his way of saying goodbye to the team. And it's also really kind of optimistic because it talks about the moon and the stars and these everlasting emblems of life and love. Yeah, I'll look up at the moon and I'll be seeing you are the lyrics. And I just saw Andy's film maybe last week and I've seen Andy since then at film festivals and now that you're saying this I am kicking myself for not remembering that because when it played in Andy's film I remember thinking like what like both of our films are about love and life and death right hers is much more human and I would never compare the two but they're about similar themes and I remember when I was hearing that song in her film thinking like, oh my God, I need to tell her that. And then that film is so emotional. And I watched it with my boyfriend and we talked for hours after it that I even forgot that detail because I think that's a testament to her film is how emotional I felt afterwards and how much I wanted to talk to her about it that I didn't even think of bringing up with her that we have the same song in our film. So thank you for the reminder. And I love Last Flight Home and I hope everyone sees it because it is gorgeous. But yeah, I mean, Steve Squires, he's the principal scientist in our film. They had picked wake up songs throughout the mission, especially in the first few years. And he had never done that. He kind of saw it as let the kids have their fun. I don't need to be a part of that because the wake up songs were always chosen in a way where either the title of the song or mostly the lyrics were relevant to whatever the rover was going through at the time. So it was like a fun side project that people could do to boost morale. But he was our Geppetto character, and this was the end of the road for his design. He had been rejected for years on making this robot before NASA finally said yes. And he picks the last wake-up song, and I love the recording of Billie Holiday's I'll Be Seeing You Too is so authentic. You can hear the crackles in it. 
It's such a throwback. So throughout my film, you've heard these big pop anthems. You've heard the Beatles. You've heard ABBA. You've heard Wham. You've heard Katrina and the Waves, Steppenwolf. And then for the final song to be such a throwback that the adventure is over. Like those songs all have so much adventure in them. And that song is so mellow and moving. And I couldn't have asked for, speaking from a filmmaker's lens right now, I couldn't have asked for a better song to end the film. And we actually did end the film once or like for maybe in the first few iterations of the film, we used to end it with that song and, and Angela Bassett saying, good night, opportunity, well done, which was the final Rover diary written to Oppie that day. And it was just to speak about the relay race or the continuing legacy. It just felt too sad and too much of punctuation at the end to not show what the future missions were going to be. But the song is just like the most perfect capstone, I think, not only to this incredible mission and bond created between human and non-human, but also for a film that has hopefully that same three-act journey tied to it that ends with a death, yes, but also looking to the future. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for being with us here today. And as far as the film goes, goodbye and job well done. <laughs> thank you so much. The film, it's not only extremely emotional, but it also fires the imagination. Mike and I were watching it. It was late in the evening and we couldn't help but go outside on my deck and look up at the stars. And there was that beautiful red dot in the sky, Mars. And Mike, that was Jupiter, by the way. Oh, the was. Big, the, I was the big, right. bright, the big bright planet was Jupiter, not Venus, as I thought. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but, I, saw that. I saw Jupiter as well, whatever. That, that was a few weeks ago. Yeah, we were looking up like from my hot tub in my backyard. And we were like, what is that? And it, was, <laughs> it, was it looks so, so bright. And if you can tell us what's up next for you. I have a film coming out next year, which my friend Jason made a joke at the Savannah Film Festival this week. It's another woman running across the sand, but it's about Pamela Anderson. So very different than Goodnight Oppie, but very character driven, very heavy into some key moments in her life. Has been a very fun film to make, one that I hope will really surprise people and that'll come out early next year. Thanks again, Ryan. It's a wonderful film and it's a film, as I think you said, appeals to people of all ages. Congratulations. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem, film that maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition that you'd like to spotlight here? I just saw a movie last night. I don't know if it's so hidden anymore, but I loved it. It's called Bad Axe, made by David Steve. And I was just on a panel with him at Savannah and his family was there, but I hadn't watched the film yet. And I'm so sad I had it because now they would be like celebrities to me, but it's a very small, and I'm using small in quotation marks film. It's just about his family during the pandemic, but such a beautiful first person narrative so intimate, so universal in so many ways, and by a young filmmaker that I think clearly has a ton of talent and we're gonna be hearing a lot from in the future. And I hope a lot of people will queue up because I think it's something very special. Thank you, and to our listeners, we will be having David Sieve on the podcast.